0: hashtag never alone with joe and mark
1: hi everyone and welcome to hashtag never alone episode 15 i am joe average yeah and
0: hi everyone i'm mark fielding um, psychotherapist and relationship counselor uh, i'm based in the uk and joe's based in uh, australia
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and today's topic um is Kind of a similar topic to what we covered before in our suicide episode but it's actually about the impact and the cause of suicide today um, and we'll be introducing our guest shortly. Um, just a few statistics that I've got off of Bite um, the Dog Institute, um, however obviously these facts can be confronting and suicide is a sensitive topic so um, just like warn, I just wanted to warn listeners that are listening, um, if the topics are covered in today's episode do affect you, please go and speak to someone. We share the helplines on our Facebook page and our Instagram. Um, just a couple of statistics. every year over a few 5,000 Australians make a suicide attempt. More than 3,000 Australians die by suicide in 2017 and suicide is the leading cause of death for Australians between 15 and 44 years of age. Um, and what, what are the causes of suicide
0: yeah I mean causes are really really complex I mean some factors are you know kind of external events stressful life events you know can lead people to feeling that you know it's the only way out really trauma um, and that could be a recent trauma or that could be a historical trauma um, mental illness things like clinical depression I mean it it, it could be different kind of mental illness you know and people again perhaps get to the point and they feel that they just don't want to carry on it's all too much physical illness and disability um, drug and alcohol abuse I think that ties into trauma perhaps in clinical depression as well um, people perhaps are uh, they have they can be more impulsive I think if there's a lot of drug taking it's there's self-medication then perhaps it's more likely that make a suicide attempt and also you know poor living conditions you know difficult lives lots of people live in poverty you know and, and you know and i think with really really difficult living conditions perhaps people's propensity to take their own lives will be more but this is a small list and you know the suicide is a very very individual thing and you know and as i said at the start the causes of suicide are extremely complex
1: of someone that's been in that position where I felt like that was the only answer and luckily didn't follow through with it uh, I've seen like even though I didn't follow through I saw the impact and the worry that it can cause people and it really like it's it's hard to put into words like the impact that I had on my family and my friends and stuff knowing that I was in a bad enough situation to feel like that was the only answer and I, I'm forever grateful for to my family for sticking by me and having my back during that time, and thank so forever grateful to my sister-in-law for like seeing how quiet pretty much what stopped me from following through with it. Um, and I obviously I've mentioned in previous episodes I spent a few days in the mental health ward, and seeing how bad some of the other people in there were made me feel like I shouldn't be in there, but obviously was the right place for me at the time. And yeah, um, so I do want to introduce our next guest. I don't want to keep her <laughs> waiting. Um, our next guest is the author of the upcoming book da- and Us, the teenage perspective on the life after the suicide of a parent. Um, is of course Amelia Alton. Thank you for joining us, Amelia.
2: Thanks for asking me to come on.
1: Thank you. Welcome. Um, you yeah, just kind of give us a little brief about your uh mental health journey and your story in regards to obviously our topic
2: yeah so um uh, in 2015 my husband took his own life by suicide um at that time our children were 13 and 15 um, he'd struggled with that for a long time um I know the first time he mentioned that to me I was actually pregnant with our son um, our son's now 21 um so yeah it was a really long time um, just things that he, I suppose, manifested, um, negative thoughts. Um, he felt like he was the black sheep of the family. Um, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, I mentioned in the book, there was some drug use there early on, like in his teens and early twenties, um, possibly had impact on, on brain development. Um, and uh, my my psych at the time said to me um, after my husband passed away, he said, Amelia, when you married him, you were twenty, or you met him when you were twenty, and he was twenty-five. By the time you were thirty and he was thirty-five, you still had this adult man in like a a late teen brain. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think sometimes that um, when you put it in in terms like that. Uh, you know, just that ability to think things through and negotiate and um, we had a farm when the kids were little and yeah, there were certain things there that uh, he just hit hit a brick wall with his thinking. And um, when I think back now, I think possibly that was brain development damage from use of drugs um, in that critical teenage and early twenties phase. Um, That did impact on his life satisfaction um, I remember he was saying to me, like, I had these fabulous stories of, of me and my brother when we were little, and um, I'd say to him, you know, have you got any good stories about you with your siblings? No. You know, and it was almost like he couldn't remember good things. Um, yeah, and so I sort of almost created this pattern of behaviour where I felt like I was constantly setting up good things for him to look forward to. Um, and one of those things is actually what we wrote the book about. So Dirt and Dust uh, is actually... Um, the last family bucket list item we planned to ride, or um, well, my husband and my son were going to plan, had planned to ride to Cape York, which is the, no, the most northern tip of Australia um, on dirt bikes. And uh, I thought my daughter and I would probably travel behind in, in a four wheel drive and we'd be the camping crew, the cooking crew, the pickup crew. And uh, anyway, so uh, my husband passed away in 2015. And um, in 2018, my son um basically said mum you and I will go so I had to learn to ride the motorbike and and um off we went (laughs) so it was 1400 kilometers but uh we made it it was rough Um, but yeah so we tell the story of the of the suicide on the motorbike ride and um you know we've done our best with the book basically to touch all of the issues that impacted um you know, that created this situation where I suppose he felt like he had to take his own life, that was the end. Um, and then the book is about my son. We made my son Riley the narrator um, because I wanted it to appeal to a young man audience. Uh, um, yeah, so I think the issues that are in the book are certainly, they're all, they're all real, they're all true. Um, they're things that have touched us. They're things that have impacted on him they're things that have affected me as the wife and the mum and then my son sort of talks through some of those things and his feelings around um, what happened with his dad so yeah um, and that was our I suppose our most gracious way of letting go as people say uh, yeah
0: yeah so so writing the book was part of you know your family's healing journey really
2: yeah it was um I actually, I've, I've written the book three times. The first time I wrote it, I, it was me just dumping it. Um, I just had to put it somewhere. The second time I, I wrote the book was um, actually cut a lot of the stuff. Um, and I just told, told the story on the seven-day ride. And then the third time I actually wrote the book, I said to Riley, I think this would be so much better coming from you as the son, you know, as you as 18-year-old you. Rather than me as the mum, the wife, the widow, I sounded like a winger, you know. <laughs> um, and and I'm also a school teacher, so I felt a little bit too teachery, you know. There was too many lessons in this. And so once we made Riley the narrator, the story actually became quite funny because I was hopeless on that bloody motorbike, um, <laughs> and it was rough and tough. And you know, I fell off so many times and when Riley was the narrator he'd be like oh mom not again you know can I just hide somewhere this is ridiculous um (laughs) so it was it was funny you know and it kept the story moving so it's not bogged down in really you know the nitty-gritty details it 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 talks about that stuff but I think the motorbike ride keeps the story moving and, and that's important I think if you're going to have young men read a book um yeah so so that was good but i think um at the time that i changed it into the third version of the book which is the dirt and dust version um my son was actually he's a qualified mechanic now but he was actually out on a property on the um right out in the bush in the sticks in the desert he's actually um he calls himself the desert ball runner on instagram and uh hilarious but um so he's out there in the desert on a million acres and um 30,000 cattle or something ridiculous and there was a changeover of, of um, caretakers on the property station managers I should say and um, while he was there by himself for about a week or two um, every afternoon I'd FaceTime him and I'd read what I'd written and I and I said to him you know I want to change this more into your language or your perspective how do we get that right because as your mum I don't want to put things I don't want to put words in your mouth or misinterpret what you thought or what you felt with that so for me that was really valuable um so yeah just trying to capture 18 year old him but with his perspective about his dad and he basically said to me mum how did you get it so spot on even the feelings about you know falling off the motorbike and things like that and I said well son I married him and I gave birth to you so if I can't get it right, there's something really wrong here. <laughs> um, yeah. So just in regard to the thought process and the, the issues and all that sort of jazz. So yeah, it was it was therapeutic and it just it actually gave my son and I an opportunity to talk about a few things that we hadn't actually aired. Um, so that was good. That was good.
0: Yeah, know, it's, it's interesting. So that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking it must have been, you know, after such a traumatic event, you know, for for, you, for all of you, the family, it must have been really connecting for you and your son actually to do this, you know, to go on that ride, you know, it's imbued yeah. with meaning. It's so, that's what it comes over in the book, you know, that the ride is so imbued with meaning. It's kind of beautiful, yeah. really. You both did that together.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, there was a bit of guilt that went with it too because, um you know, in the book we talked about, or Riley said, you know, I don't know if I'm doing this for mum, mum's doing this for me, or are we really doing this to let let dad go, you know, and yeah. there's these thoughts the whole time. But I think that was the the perfect thing about the ride was it's been hours every day on that motorbike, in your own helmet, in your own space. And, um, you know, you, you would just be thinking through these things. And, and I caught myself really angry, really angry, um, yeah, and I just, when I got those angry thoughts, I literally had to go, you know what, that's the last time I'm going to be angry about that. Mm-hmm. It's the last time. And um, and I, I visualised, um, as I was writing, I visualised literally the thought, that angry thought coming in my left hand and accelerating with my right hand and letting that thought go out the right hand. I thought it's got to come, it's got to go, work its way through, I can be cranky, I can be angry, I can be hard on that thought or that feeling and then let it go and Mm -hmm. um and I literally just left them behind like hundreds of them as I'm riding this 1400 kilometers up Mm -hmm. the dirt you know um yeah so for me I just thought and when I feel that anger or that um disappointment that's the other big big emotion that comes with this
0: yeah
2: Um, I literally just had to go you know what that's the last time I can attach an emotion to that because it's just going to ruin me you know it'll ruin us um yeah so interesting interesting feelings um and you know we've got a daughter as well and it was really actually hard to to go on the ride and and she wasn't there so it was between my son and I yeah and it was supposed to be him and his dad and and um in regard to the book I've I've sent it to her and I said have you read the book and she said no I don't know if I want to read it mum and I said, that's okay, absolutely okay. Um, but I've actually, I've got another book that I I, um, I want to write and it's actually about, it's a children's picture story book and I'll just quickly tell you about this because it's a magical story. So the year that my husband died, um, I taught a bunch of 12 and 13-year-old kids and um, I had two weeks off and it was enough time to organise a funeral and do all that sort of stuff. And then... When I came back to work, the kids in my class just stared at me as if, you know, they're looking to see if I'd changed. And um, this boy, and I didn't know it was him, but this boy left a little flower on my desk every day for about three months. Um, And it was yeah, yeah. So, and I didn't know it was him. And, and so I jokingly used to say to the kids every day, I'd be marking the roll in the morning and I'd say, oh, wow, thank you to the flower thief, you know, because they would obviously snuck in and left this little flower on my desk. Um, and then one day he came into my classroom and he was laughing and he said, oh, miss, this little old lady chased me down the road and she told me that she was going to tell my dad that I keep picking the flowers out of her garden. And, and then I said, oh, my God, it was you. And then he went outside and he nearly cried because he'd shared the secret. And, uh, you know, so he never actually bought me any more flowers, uh, but the other kids did for about two years. So an incredible story, an incredible story, a bunch of Um, 12-year-olds. And and I teach in a little tiny country town. These kids have got nothing. You know, this particular boy really had nothing and no one. And um, so I want to write this children's picture storybook about um about grief but about legendary kindness Um, so yeah so some of the i used um a snake metaphor in the book um, but that that actually came from that particular day when i went back to work and the kids just stared at me and i said righty let me explain this i said all right i feel like i'm a giant carpet snake and i've i've been force-fed a wombat And I'm just, I'm trying to get that wombat down, (laughs) you know, so, and they went, "Mm," you know, and nodded and looked at me and, and, uh, you know, so some great stuff came out of that. So that's sort of stuff that I actually want to put into pictures uh, for, say, 10 to 13 year olds to understand grief. And I don't necessarily want that book to be about suicide, but I do want it to be about understanding grief and that it comes and that it goes, because I do worry that teenagers, um, particularly with an Indigenous community not far from us here, and they get like a tsunami of suicides. It's like the kids don't know how to cope with loss um, and it becomes overwhelming. And so I I want it to be a picture story book so that kids that don't have a high level of literacy could still visually pick up what that means. Um, Yeah, so anyway, that's my next little goal Um, after we get this one out but yeah completely different story but I want my daughter to actually be the narrator of that book because she was friends with that boy Um, unfortunately he was killed in a car accident earlier this year Um, I know I know and so I told the story of the flower thief at his funeral and all the kids that were in that class um we're, we're at the funeral and they're all 18 now and they just nodded and they smiled and they laughed and you know it was just such a magical a magical time for us um, and so connected and just legendary kindness for a bunch of 12 year olds you know so yeah so that's um that's my beautiful story that I tell everybody you know in this in this story of grief and suicide um, people do amazing things
1: yeah. yeah yep when you release the book you're off that now, we'll share it with all listeners because it's definitely something um one of the things you don't teach in school and i think there's another thing even mental health as well they don't teach kids about mental health and they don't teach kids about loss or grief i know from yeah. my point of view when i lost my granddad and i was in school i was never taught I how to deal with it and my grandma and i held on to death of my grandma for years and i only dealt with it in a lot recently um mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted like I I love the fact that like your son narrates the book because me and I'm sure Mark agree, like that men don't talk about mental health, as you mentioned with your husband. And that is one of the points we're trying to get out there with this podcast and with some of the episodes we've done with men and mental health and suicide, and some of the other Mm -hmm. episodes we've done that men don't talk about mental health because they bottle up their feelings and there's not enough about and I think by having your son narrate about the book and talk about the suicide and his own feelings and dealing with grief is so beneficial for people out there that are going to read the book. And, and, and
2: I think, um, yeah, for me, uh, my husband really struggled with articulating his thoughts and feelings. And I say this to my high school kids all the time you know, you only need five words. Um, I need help now, please or can you please help me or yeah. you know something like that there's only five words and you've got to rehearse them because you know if you don't know how to articulate those thoughts and feelings and you are struggling um you know and, and I've I notice it all the time particularly in men you know when they're mad they're not actually mad they're just tragically sad about something but it comes out as mad mm. and I say this to my high school kids all the time you know sometimes you've got to, read a bit deeper into the emotion that's behind the one that you're actually seeing because it's not necessarily that one. Um, yeah. And um, at the moment, um, I know it's it's not mainstream, but um, because we've got some kids that have really big challenges. Um, I'm actually creating like self-care plans with them at the moment. You know, you've got your normal self-care plan and then you've got your emergency self-care plan because by the time you leave us, when you're 16 years old, I need to know you can save yourself. You know, so this has become a bit of a, me as the, uh, you know, on the crusade here, but um, that's my way of, of positively feeding that back into these guys because they are, you know, they're socioeconomically challenged. They're, they're gonna have struggles bigger than most um you know so yeah that's where we're at
0: with those guys but yeah um that's I, that i mean i i love the idea of the self-care plans mm-hmm. and, and so a self-care plan that you know that, that when they reach 16 they can go off and you know they can have that you know they can have it kind of written down but they can also have it in their heads but that i think yeah. is fantastic you know just to go back to kind of what joe was saying about you know grief and loss there's you know and then it, it's particularly you know the case for men you know men will tend to internalize and they won't talk about it but but it but in schools I mean I you know it's a long time ago since I was at school but you know there, there was no there was nothing about grief nothing about loss you know and, and western society you know loss is just tucked away isn't it and people just you know yes. people just don't like to talk about it and and you know and that is really I think you know really really difficult for people because this is something that is part of all of our lives and it's important Absolutely. that people are able to talk about it.
2: And, and, you know, a lot of these kids, they were only in primary school, you know, six years ago when my husband passed away. Um, but I've taught the older brothers and sisters, so they all know our story and they know my kids and my kids have grown up and left now. My son's 21, my daughter's 19, um, you know, but writing this book, the kids ask me every day, you know, how are you going with the book? Where are you up to with the book? And, um, you know, it's I, the bunch of kids I teach, they're probably a little bit too young to read the book. I've read them parts of the book, but um, I said to them when we were doing these self self care plans care plans the other day, you know, I was creating these giant carrots for my husband to say, hey, look, you know, we've got this to look forward to, and you know, we're going to do this motorbike ride. And I said, but why? Why didn't he hang on? Because I didn't realize that the goal was actually my goal. I'd committed to the goal. I created the idea about the motorbike ride and the family trip and we're all going to go. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for me to set the goal or me to commit to that or me to work towards it. I don't know whether he just didn't believe it or he didn't think we'd do it or whatever that was. And I just said to them, you know, in the end, I ended up doing the bloody motorbike ride and I had no intention of doing that because it was my goal and it was unfulfilled. Um, so I said, this is the part where you've got to create your own strategies for success and your own hope and your own goals, and you've got to be able to, um, learn how to transition from one place to another, um, create your own hope. And, um, you know, that's really, really, really important. You don't realize how important it is until, you know, basically as epic as as it was, it was an epic fail, um. You know, he took his own life because the goal wasn't big enough, or you know, whatever it was in his world, he didn't believe that we could achieve that. So, super, super important. Um, set yourself up for success. Create your own hope. You know, um, work towards your own goals. Yep, take people with you on the journey because it's bloody lonely if you don't. But yeah, you, it's super important to be able to do that and and you know and work towards making it happen. So, I think there's um. You know developing that resilience or that um that grit whatever whatever the keywords are at the moment yeah. um to, to be able to follow through yeah
1: there's a, a really beautiful part in the book i don't want to spoil too much where your son's sitting down with the motorbike person This uh, mm-hmm. i think his name's Gus, and the fact that he sits there and speaks openly about mental health and his dad and the suicide with them and they sit there and they listen. It kind of really goes to show that whoever you are and whoever you speak to, there will be someone that will listen. And no matter who I'm like, this is a big biker guy who you probably would think, oh, he's not going to have issues with mental health. He's tough, tough exterior and everything. And the fact that he sat there and listened to your son talk about suicide, talk about his dad, it was just really like resonated with me. I think it just goes to show that there's always someone to talk to.
2: Yeah, and I think also, you know, in the book, the reason why I wanted Riley to be the narrator was because I want men, you know, all men to know that, you know, you just got to have each other's back and you've got to be able to talk about this stuff and you've got to be able to listen. And it's not all about fixing the problem. Um, Sometimes it's just being heard or just going, yeah, yeah, I remember that or, yeah, I felt that or, you know, it's that acknowledgement that this stuff happens um whatever it is and uh and that sharing and and women do that sharing so easily (laughs) um and yeah but I think also what men do is they they isolate and they withdraw because they think it's only them or they're not handling it or you know they don't have the answer or they're not good enough and and that's all crap like that's you've got to be able to share that and and connect with other people and you're not a whinger and and riley said in the book you know if you don't talk about it you're not dealing with it if you talk about it people say you're a victim or you know it's bullshit like you've just got to be able to actually just share that story be open to what um, someone else's interpretation of that might be and and go forward from there um yeah just go forward from there don't don't withdraw because that's literally i think that's what in the end that's that's what happened, you know, with my husband. He disconnected, he withdrew, isolated himself. I'm, I mean, I've done it at different times when I'm hurting. You know, I think, oh, I've got nothing to say right now, um, nothing positive to say or, um, you know, whatever that is. But, you know, you turn the corner and the next day it's different or 20 minutes later it's different. And I think that's what people need to realise is that, you know, you're not necessarily stuck there. And and some of the metaphors that we've used in the book about, you know, basically riding through those clouds, like those clouds over the road and you've literally just got to, you know, travel at the same speed, same direction and trust that you're going to come out the other side. Um, That's essentially what I think um, being depressed is like or, or, you know, you know it's going to come, you know it's got to go and that's what scares me about teenagers is they don't realise that it's going to come and it's going to go and it's going to come again but it's gonna go and you just gotta, you know, literally hold your throttle steady and just keep going. Um, One foot in front of the other, whatever that is until you get through. And, um, you know, I think I I was talking to somebody else just recently, um, just uh, via message and they actually did the same trip as me. And and he's a bit of a mental health guru. And he just said, I can't believe how, how good that trip made me feel. And, um, and I thought about my experience with that trip. You know, there were things that I didn't realise I'd be able to achieve, but it's not until you push yourself and you realise you can and then you go, wow, that was amazing. You know, I can't believe I did that. And literally every other person I've ever seen since I've done that ride has gone, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, oh, man, me either. Um, <laughs> but that's that's that developing Um, confidence in your ability and and then you have a measure of how tough things are you think oh man if I can ride 1400 kilometers from Cairns to Cape York you know through rainforests through you know like sandy country up the old telegraph track you know like literally over logs and through rivers man I can do anything so sometimes there's this you know you don't know you can do it until you can do it but at the same time like I said to Riley neither of us could have done that on our own so there's the power of the group you know like you've got to be able to rely on on the other people that are there and society is the same you know society is exactly the same you you can't do it all yourself yeah you just can't you just you, you know we're not made to be solo we're not made to be right. you know um we're we're yeah, we're herd animals, we're pack animals, you know, you, you need to be social. Um, and it's when we're not that there becomes a bit of an issue. Yeah, particularly for men.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think men just feel, you know, it's a bit of a generalization. I think it's a lot of shame around for men, isn't it? You know, men, you know, if they're not feeling okay, you know, they just feel shame, you know, they can't possibly tell their mates, you know, there's also, I think, a feeling that you know that men won't other men won't be able to listen you know being you know obviously i'm a man i've sat in male groups my whole life friendship groups and you often feel that these conversations don't happen the men will talk about sport or talk about you know but but deeper conversations often the group you know the group doesn't seem open to them really And, and what you were saying i wanted to pick up what you were saying about the depression as well you know i think it's so true you know the depression if it has a voice when people have depression it says don't talk to your mates don't go out don't go to work, don't get out of bed, you know, and and it is difficult not to listen to that voice, you know, but the healing is in not listening to that voice and doing all of the things that depression is telling you not to do. Reach out to your friends. You know, often people think, oh, well, I've got nothing to say to my friends. I'm so depressed, you know, I've got, but, you know, but the reaching out, I think, is so, so helpful. And I think, you know, again, it's a generalisation, but I think, you know, I think men have got a lot to learn from women, really, in terms of reaching out, you know, women do tend to do that. And men just tend to internalize and it's so damaging
1: for men Mm. yeah one of the questions i had um what kind of obviously you and your son kind of coping tragedy was writing the book and kind of your healing process what about your husband's family how did it kind of impact them and how did they cope with it or
2: that's not pretty um yeah really interesting um tough so yeah I basically got a text message as I was telling my kids that their dad passed away and it wasn't a very nice text message um, yeah so that didn't go down real well um, hasn't really recovered from there we live two states away so um, you know it's not like we live in the same town or anything like that and, you know, I, I never chose to leave. We lived in Victoria and uh, and we left the farm because my husband was suicidal and that was, you know, 20, well, oh, nearly 20 years ago. Um, yeah, and we never told anybody that. That was our business. Um, I was busy just trying to look after him, cope, you know, my kids needed their daddy, whatever you got to do, you know. So we packed up in a fortnight and left. Um, unfortunately no one in his family knew that. Um, yeah, so we, we did that. And then, so we moved to Queensland and he was good for a while. Um, and then he sort of went back to that same state again and like that same emotional state. And I thought, Oh, here we go again. (laughs) Um, and then, yeah, sort of recovered for a bit and then did it again. And, you know, it was just this, this ongoing cycle, but, um, you know, I actually think he didn't want to be near his family when we had the farm because he just um, he knew he had this struggle, and so he wanted to be away from them because he didn't want them to know his struggle. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether you know other family factors contributed to that. I, I think they did, but I you can't you can't keep reflecting on these things. Um, Anyway, so oh, the, the crazy part was I thought I got along pretty well with his, his family. Um, but, yeah, there's just this instant blame. It must be your fault. Um, yeah, so that was pretty, that's probably the, the, been the toughest part for me um, is, is that, is the blame. Um, I, I have tried to reconnect with his mum. That didn't go down particularly well uh oh man that could have been a movie, a scene out of a movie but never mind um so yeah I just I literally I just had to walk away that time and say okay all right I um I tried because I I didn't want her to go to her grave um hating me or thinking that the situation was unresolved and, and that's why I tried um but I just I did I had to just go all right I, I respect a choice um that, that was my best effort and uh, I just had to leave it alone, which is a real shame, um, particularly because I thought I got along quite well before before this. Um, anyway, I've just had to leave it. Yeah, so not, not real great. Um, yeah, but I think, again, you know, my husband didn't, he didn't share his mental health issues with anybody but me, so I ended up becoming like you know the keeper of the secret. But I was so busy, you know, loving him better, or coaching, or mm. setting things up for success, or managing the kids around him. You know, I became this like <laughs> this crazy kind of person, you know, making sure that this bloody terrible outcome wasn't going to happen. And um, you know, I literally, I when well, we had the farm, the kids were little, but so many times when he was in a bad place. And I'd think, oh, he's been going down the farm too long. I'd better go and look, you know, or the cows would come up to the dairy and I'd think machines haven't turned on and I'd go and look, you know, but I had to make sure that, you know, he didn't get a complex about that. So I'd cover it up and I'd take him a beer or I'd take him a cup of coffee or I'd, you know, pretend I was looking for the dog or something, you know. just because I didn't want him to feel bad if I was thinking, oh, it's crap, it's now, it's now, it's now, you know. um, So living with someone who is suicidal, you know, um, it's tough because you don't want to, you don't want to doubt them. Um, But at the same time, you're ready, you know, ready to run, ready to save, ready to, you know whatever that is and uh and I know I do it now I had had someone not turn up to work probably a little while ago and straight away I thought oh gee and I went straight into save mode um and I was like well where is he you know and uh (laughs) I end up driving to the next town to his house and (laughs) left a little message on his front door on a serviette and like hey mate um just checking to see if you're okay you weren't at work today we missed you and then when I got back to work, he was at work and I said, oh, when you get home today, you know, just <laughs> nothing strange, but there's probably this little note on your door <laughs> from me. Oh, right, what's that about? I said, oh, you know, just me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's that's what, this, that's what this does to you. I'm like that with my school kids. Um, you know, they know that I care, but I tell you what, it, it puts you through the ringer. Um, as soon as you think someone's backed away, or they're quiet or they haven't turned up or they you know you start thinking the worst um that's yep that's what that is and you know and I said to Riley um he went through a tough patch um you know so basically that there's the book of dirt and dust and uh we got back from from the trip and we're on this massive high for about a month and then um his boss actually had a massive heart attack or a stroke at work and and passed away so he's my 18 year old son lost his dad um then lost his boss at work and um as a mum I then went oh no you know my poor kid he's 18 he's lost the two most significant men in his life and um and then and I said to him, oh, you poor bastard, you know, like you had me as a widow and now you've got your boss's wife. <laughs> you know, like what do you do with that? He's 18. So anyway, he was all right for a while and he was he was doing really well. Like the day he got his tow truck licence was the day his boss died and um, he did CPR and all that sort of stuff for 45 minutes because we are a fair way from the next town and, you know, just all that trauma that went with that. And then um, anyway, it all got a bit much. He ended up changing uh, locations. He moved to another town, uh, which I was a bit worried about because then he wasn't under my nose and I wasn't keeping an eye on him. And um, he went on a bit of a downer and, you know, he attempted to get some mental health help there. And I said to him, son, you know, I could arrange this for you, but I don't want to. I said, because I know what's going to happen. I said, I, I did all of this stuff for your dad and I'm trying not to draw parallels here. But the reality is this. I made all of these appointments for your dad um, and he never, ever went. I said, so I'm going to tell you, you need to do this. I can tell you who to ring, where to go, what to do. I said, but you've actually got to commit to um, this recovery. And um, anyway, he, he started with that Um it, didn't go fabulously well. And I said to him, you've got to, f- you know, maybe that person wasn't the right person or maybe that organisation wasn't the right organisation. Um, you know, and it takes a while to tell your story to, to mental health professionals. Right. And I said, yeah, and I said to, this is what I say to my school kids, you know, someone needs to know your story while you're in a good place. Someone yeah. needs to know, because if, you know, if, if there's this backlog of work that these people have, it could take you six months to, to tell your story before they can actually help you. So this is why I'm trying to empower my high school kids. You've got to be able to help each other. They're your crew. They're your people, you know? Um, yeah. So anyway, that wasn't particularly successful. And then I was a bit, oh, oh, what do I do now? And then he finished his apprenticeship, finished up in that particular job, came home. He's, he, you know, He was pleased that he finished his mechanics apprenticeship, but he was a bit what do I do now? And he was not in a great place. And we had a conversation one day and he said, Mum, you never have to worry about me. I said, Why is that, son? And he said, Because I'm never going to do what dad did. And I said, Why? And he said, Because I've got too many questions. Um, he said, oh, I've just got too many questions. And I said, Okay, all right. I trust your judgment on that. And um, and then he got this job out in the desert. And so then he moved two states away, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, he's, he's a long, long, long way away now. And, and I thought, oh, man, he could be out in the desert in his swag for a fortnight at a time. No phone reception, no nothing. What happens if he, you know, he hits the skids then? What do I do then? I'm the mum and I'm like, you know, save, save, save mode. So I had about two weeks um, when he came home, he finished his um, apprenticeship. He came home, he was home for two weeks and I secretly wrote him this little book and it wasn't a book like Dirt and Dust. Um, it was just um, a, uh, a white, a book full of white pages. <clears throat> and I had a big, black, fat texter. And I just wrote down all the song lyrics that made sense to us, or um, things that my dad taught me, um, you know, things that I knew his dad had said to him. Um, and I wrote down a few little things. Um, um, there's a book called the, um, Five Love Languages or something like that. And I just yeah. wrote a couple of yeah. notes. Yeah. And so I, I feel this book was, I don't know, about 25 pages or something like that. And, and um, you know, just mummisms. And because um, I just kept thinking, how do I grow my boy into a man? And I'm not even there. And, you know, I can't do the same thing and I've got to let him go. Otherwise, he's going to be Peter Pan. You know, he's going to be a boy forever. You know, <laughs> so I, I, I wrote this sort of I just scribbled these things in this book. And we went out for dinner and I gave him this book. I said, look, you know, you could be at a phone range. You haven't had the mental health help that I, I wanted you to have for the trauma. Um, but if stuff gets real, I just I want you to know that you've got, you know, messages from home, um, just to know that you matter. And um he just said, thanks, mum, and then off he went. So, and he's as good as gold, like honestly, um <laughs> he's as good as gold. Yeah. He uh he called himself an emu chick this week and I mean a real life emu. Um that's his his pet. Um <laughs> oh but uh he's he's had his first bull ride a couple of weeks ago at a rodeo um so yeah he's uh he's doing great he's doing really good and my daughter she's 19 and she's just started a new job this week and you know the duck the tough thing for her is she was dad's girl so there's always been this ah everyone's eyes were on me as the wife and eyes on riley as the son but she's like the anomaly in this, you know, what do you do with that? She's got her mum, but she doesn't have her dad and she loved dad and dad loved her. So that's actually been kind of almost more difficult in some ways because I haven't really known how to, how to deal with that one. But um, she, believe it or not, just got a job dive, driving those dirty, great big dump trucks in a mine in Gove. And um, she sent me a photo of her standing in front of this huge big truck. And she said, mummy, I'm a bit sad. I said, why is that? And she said, because I wanted to show dad my picture because my husband used to work in mining um, and she had a cry. And I actually, at 19, you know, I think she's actually just starting to deal with um, loss of her dad now. So uh, just, you know, young adult world. Um, Yeah. So anyway, um but yeah, that was that was that was just this week. so really, really cool, so proud, so proud um, of her taking on that job and um, you know, she's like, I'm getting dad vibes i have I've even got those stupid safety sunglasses <laughs> and um you know, so they they refer really nicely to their dad and and I'm so grateful because you know, it could have been terrible. it could have been terrible and and you know, I love that they love their dad and um, and our trip to the to the Cape, the dirt and dust trip, you know, um, yeah, it was it was pretty rough and bumpy, but I think we got the right outcome there. So. Yeah.
0: so it's a, it's a really beautiful book I mean there's you know I'm not gonna not gonna lie there were parts where you know it really made me tear up but you know but there's there also some really really wonderful joyous parts as well I mean it really is. I'm, I'm kind of wanting to I, I was really struck by the way you ended it but you probably don't want me to read the ending on the podcast but um, just well uh,
2: I think it's in... I think the words are worth sharing yeah. though because would, there's. would that be okay
0: that... Yeah. yeah
2: absolutely
0: just well I've, I've re- I was so struck by it I just wrote it down with and it, it's not that dad didn't choose me or mum or my sister he simply didn't choose life I, I thought that was I'm, I'm kind of tearing yeah. up even as I'm saying it now yeah. it's beautiful I thought that was absolutely yeah. beautiful and says so much it's such a short it's such a short few words but the meaning of that I thought was you know tremendous really mm.
2: yeah and uh you know that actually came from a friend of mine in Melbourne. And we've, we'd been friends for years and years. And um, she was preparing uh, to end her life. And um, I, I, I'm such a fighter, I, you know, I'm like, you can't, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm just this Rah! kind of personality. And she just said to me, look, you know, your husband took his own life, if I take mine, you have to love me and love him enough to let him choose and I was like no (laughs) no um when you're alive no absolutely no um but when someone is successful at taking their own life how the hell do you decompress after trying to save them for 20 years you know like that's that was the, the purpose of the ride to the Cape was decompress enough to be able to accept this thing, you know, accept this adult decision. And, um, and, you know, my friend said to me, um, you know, okay, if I don't choose it today, I may choose it again in the future. You've got to love me enough and respect me enough to let me choose that. And I still went, no, <laughs> but by the time we'd done that 1400 kilometres to the, to the Cape, And I was exhausted and I don't know whether it was, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, all of it, all of it together. And I I literally had to stop fighting it and and accept that this was a decision that my husband made. Um, I didn't like it. I still don't like it. Um, But it's like like hurting yourself if you don't. Um, And I didn't want my kids to feel rejection by their dad not being there for them you know my daughter obviously felt that a little bit this week with I just wanted to show dad my picture you know I made it I'm driving these big dump trucks in the mine and I know that he'd be so proud Um, you know and same with my son on the bull ride you know and I can't believe that you know someone can't stay for those things that's what I that's what I can't understand. I I go, why would you give that up? Why would you miss that? You know, I don't want to miss any opportunities. I get mad sometimes because I don't want to miss opportunities. But that's my personality. That's my drive. That's my way. Um, But with those words at the end of the book, um, I just, I didn't want my kids to be burdened with this feeling of Loss or grief or rejection or not good enough, and that's why that's why I chose those words.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: really are lovely words. Mm. Um, unfortunately, uh, I love (laughs) Um, I mean, I could chat to hours with you about everything. Like, you're honestly such an incredible person, and you're so brave in sharing your story and such a resilient person. I'm sure Mark would agree with me. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'll get around to finishing the book and once it's released please let us know I would love to share it with our listeners there's someone that's sure. been at the point where like, I felt like it was the only answer and like, some of the stuff you mentioned about worrying about what your son's doing because of what happened with your husband like my mum was the same Like, once I moved back to the UK after being in the mental health ward, if I stormed off or I disappeared and I wasn't answering my phone my mum would panic because she would worried that I'd gone and followed through and, like, looking back now, like, obviously at the time, I didn't think of that because it was just one uh, one thing in my head. And looking back, I, I do want to apologise to my mum. It's a horrible thing to put people through. And, like, sometimes you do feel like there's no answer. But mm-hmm. really, we say this to our listeners very often, go and speak to someone, and especially men. And we do want to, with the podcast, we want to encourage men to speak up and, Share your story because there's always going to be someone that will listen to it. And like when Dirt and Dust is out, we'll share it with our listeners. And I really encourage people to go and read it because, yeah, even like it might encourage you to share your story with others. And I want to say a massive thank you to you for joining us for this podcast and being brave enough to come and talk with us, we really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's been good to meet you, Amelia. Thank you for doing the podcast. It's been great. We must get you on again Bye. at some point. When your next yeah. book comes out, we'll get you on again.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: thank you. No worries. Yeah,
1: yeah, Thank you for joining us and we'll send all our uh, sending our best wishes to you and your family. And um yeah, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> no, thank you again. All right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks again, Thanks, Amelia. Mark. Thanks, Bye.
2: Joe. See Bye. you.
1: If you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes, please contact your local or country's helpline. You will find them by going to Google and typing in a helpline. They have Samaritan's suicide helpline, but remember that you're not alone, as the title of the podcast says. And there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone. But there's always someone there for you to talk to, be it a friend, a family member, a stranger, a psychotherapist or a doctor. There's someone to talk to. I've been in that position before. And talking to someone really does help. It's okay to not be okay, And I will see you in the next episode.